We're continuing in Luke chapter 9. Today's topic is true discipleship. And I've put a, an explainer after that, which is the journey to joyful victory. So true discipleship, the journey to joyful victory. Before we read primarily the words of the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 9, I, I just want to give a bit of a preamble and introduction because we are going to be shocked by the plain speaking of Jesus today. He speaks of things that are going to stop us in our tracks and make us reconsider our direction in life. It might be sobering for us. It might be painful. It might be life-changing and it might be the mid-course correction that we need to get back heading in the way that God wants us to go as those he has saved for himself. So we need to prepare ourselves for what we're going to read. Jesus, as we thought last week, has just heard Peter in response to the question, well, who do you, disciples, say that I am? Respond with, you are the Christ of God the special one of God that had been prophesied by the prophets who was coming, the anointed one of God. Jesus has just heard that declaration from the mouth of Peter on behalf of the disciples. They've come to some understanding of who Jesus really is. And instantly, Jesus begins to challenge their misconceptions about his mission and their mission. He confronts their misguided understanding of the Christ's mission and their misguided understanding of what it means to be a disciple of the Messiah. Now, remember the disciples are people at this time who are influenced by centuries of Jewish teaching that's based on what was in the Old Testament as we have it. It's the same scriptures that the Jewish leaders were using to teach the people in Jesus's day. And because of that, they're looking for the Christ of God to be a great political and military leader who's going to defeat Israel's enemies and establish Israel as the head of the nations. That's a valid interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies but it's not a full one. So Jesus begins to unpick their ideas um, by explaining that his journey from this moment on is not what they're expecting. And in doing so, he begins to unravel their understanding of what it really means to be a true disciple follower of Jesus. So as he unpicks they're thinking about his mission, it unravels what they're thinking about themselves. Because they're expecting, the disciples are at this point, that they're going to have prominent positions in the Messiah, the Christ's, uh, coming, almost impending, arriving at kingdom of God that he's been preaching about. So they're expecting that he's going to achieve a victory and they're just simply going to step in and enjoy the results of that. 
and have positions of prominence in that new kingdom. We know from our vantage point that Jesus is going to achieve a great victory. It's a greater victory than the disciples at the time we're going to read about had any understanding of. And it was a greater victory than merely being a victory over the politics and the peoples of the world. It was going to be a victory over Satan and sin. And we know that Jesus' followers will enjoy greater rewards than the disciples at this time were thinking were going to be great rewards. That because of the greater victory that Jesus will achieve, because his mission is going a different way than they expect, they're going to be brought in, the disciples are, into something even greater than they have in their minds. This is just remarkable. It's delightful. It's God's purposes being unworked. So the journey to joyful victory involves suffering and death for both the Christ and his followers. Say that again. The journey to joyful victory involves suffering and death for both the Christ and his followers. Now read with me in Luke chapter 9 and we'll see why I've said what I've said and then we'll take our time to work through it together. Luke chapter 9 and verse 21. Notice verse 20 finishes and Peter answered the Christ of God. That's who you are. Verse 21. And he's, that's Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's Jesus' immediate response. Let's continue on, verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then he takes three to see his glory in a transfiguration experience, but that's next week's topic. We're going to go down to verse 43 now, and you should have in your Bibles a paragraph break halfway through the verse. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, all is the one who is great. And then down to verse 57. Just to get these sections of this 
narrative that are all linked together to do with discipleship. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Just for the sake of the continuity of the true discipleship topic, we've taken those readings. We're going to go back, as said already, and look at the bits that are, we've missed out. But this is just to give us some uh, thinking that's lined up to do with discipleship. Jesus first, if we go back to verse 21, strictly charges them not to tell anyone he's the Christ. Sometimes we scratch our heads at that one. Uh, Jesus is never recorded in the scriptures as ever claiming to be the Christ himself by the words that he says. Whenever he's challenged by the high priest just before his crucifixion, during his trial, he is asked then, are you the Christ of God? And he says, yes. But Jesus refers to himself Usually, and Luke is the one who uses the language most, as the Son of Man. Now that does have a link with the Messiah figure, the Christ, because it goes back um, to Daniel chapter 7, where it says, One like a Son of Man was presented to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given all dominion over all peoples, and his kingdom will be forever. So he chooses that language, because there is a link with what God had prophesied about one who was coming. But also he chose that because it was speaking of his humility as the God who had become man. But he never himself says, I am the Christ. And that, I think, is because Jesus wants people to arrive at that conclusion for themselves, and this is important, with God's enabling as they observe him and listen to him. And that's why the gospel narratives are so important for us and for our faith. That John in his letter says, I've written these things so that you might believe that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ. By observing his life and listening to the things that he teaches, the things that he does and the things that he says, Jesus is wanting people to come to realization that he is the promised one of God. And they can't come to that understanding on their own. So it requires God in his grace to awaken that understanding for them. So I think that's why one reason why he told the disciples, don't go shouting about who I am. Because I want people to work this out by God's help for themselves. So they're not just laying hold of something because they've been told it and they think, well, that's a good idea. But it doesn't grip their hearts. I'm fearful that today we have people who've gripped hold of an idea that they think is a good one and they're calling it salvation and it's not gripped their hearts. They've taken hold of something, but it's not taken hold of them. But there's another reason for this. Uh, I think that the Lord wanted to avoid people being whipped up into a frenzy 
as happens in big crowds, and we see this happening where somebody starts shouting something and we have it recorded in scripture, this happened as well, and everybody starts shouting the same thing. Before they know it, they're shouting about something they have no clue about, and suddenly something happens. That could have happened. The people could have got into some sort of hysterical response. The Christ is here. He's going to oust the Romans and usher in this kingdom that God has been promising. That was their thinking. So I think the Lord was wanting the disciples to hold back from that because he knew that the mission of the Christ was not that. It requires God to help us to understand who Jesus is. And the reason I say that is if you go to the parallel account in Matthew, and that's Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asks the question of Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. We get a fuller response there. But same thing, you're the Christ of God. What did Jesus say after that? He said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my father who is in heaven. That's verse 17 of Matthew 16. Jesus wants people to come to an understanding of the reality of who he is by themselves as helped by God. So that's why I think Jesus is careful to say, you don't go shouting about this because people are going to lay hold of an ideal and it's not gripping them at all. It's easy to go with the flow. That's not what it means to be a disciple. Jesus then says something that just shocks them, and we don't get their response here, but Peter responds in Matthew and says, that's never going to happen to you. And the Lord says, get behind me, Satan. You need to go and read the parallel account in Matthew 16 for it. But what does Jesus say? He says that the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected by the people who should have recognized who he was, the Jewish leadership who were experts and knew the Old Testament so fully they should have identified who he was, but they didn't. They were the ones to reject him, that he must be killed and he must be raised. Now, this just blows out of the water any conceptions that the disciples at this point have of the mission of the Messiah, the Christ of God. But Jesus here is revealing God's eternal purpose that centers in on himself as the Christ to bring a greater victory than the people in his day had in their minds. Now, I think there's a warning for us if we're followers of the Lord Jesus in this. That sometimes like the Jews of Jesus's day and the disciples at this point, that we can have expectations of how God operates and God's purposes that are not what God has purposed. I'm going to leave that hanging there and we're going to come back to that in a little while. Let's move down to the next section, which is verse 23 onwards. Jesus, having said, my mission is to suffer, be rejected, be killed and be raised. He then issues an invitation. He said to all, if anyone would come after me. It's an invitation. Come. We read throughout the Gospels, Jesus appealing to people, come, follow me. And we've had it in the last section of our reading today. He's just told the disciples, maybe in the hearing of others, that's conjecture, to come and to follow him. And 
we've learned that his journey is going to go a different way than they imagined. And it's going to require suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. And then he issues the invitation, come follow me. Well, thank you for that. That's a really uh, exciting invitation to pick up. Do you get this point here that Luke is trying to bring us into? This is shocking for what it really means to be a disciple. And he just doesn't stop and say, come after me, having said what he said. He then lays it on the line and notice three aspects of what it means to be a true disciple. He reinforces it by saying, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross daily and you have to follow me. So the invitation to come means a denial of ourselves, taking up our cross daily and following Jesus. What does denying ourselves mean? It's no longer living for our own selfish ambitions. Now, I tried to work through that, and that's a massive topic when I look at my own messy life. Boil it down to two things. Sinful, selfish desires is to expect to be given what I think I am entitled to whenever I want it. And secondly, to become who I think I'm entitled to be as a person. You know, I think, well, those are fairly valid. I think they are, but they're all about me. To expect to be given what I think I'm entitled to and to become who I think I'm entitled to become. It's all about me. It's not about anybody else. Jesus is saying, in denying yourself, you stop thinking about yourself and you start thinking about God and other people. And that then brings a freedom. Think about it, it brings a freedom from everything that we impose upon ourselves when our selfish thinking is all about us. Take up your cross daily, Jesus said. Those listening back then knew that they would watch the criminals captured by the Romans, carrying a part of their cross out of the city to the place of crucifixion. The Lord would do it himself. They knew that a man who was carrying a cross was on a one-way journey to death. That person had relinquished all rights to any power to do anything for themselves. They were powerless under the authority of Rome. Do you see how that links with deny yourself? Take up your cross. Now that's a voluntary thing. I am going to submit myself to the authority and I'm gonna go the way that takes me to death. Now, notice it says daily. The Lord says daily. I think he says daily because he knows that every day we get up and our selfish desires uh, can be the things that are gra grabbing our hearts and our minds and our thinking. And uh, he says, no, take up this cross. You're going a one-way journey. And it's a journey to joyful victory. And I've gone that way for you already. Join me in it because it brings you into the greatest of freedom. So it's death to the selfish way of life that once consumed us. And then Jesus says, deny yourselves, take up your cross daily and follow me. 
Take up your cross daily and follow me. Third thing. Jesus is not going to ask us to go somewhere he's not been himself. He invites us to come and be with him, to follow him. Knowing that as one author I've enjoyed in recent days, Dallas Willard, says, we become apprentices of Jesus because he is the greatest person who ever lived. We're invited into this life to learn from him. Verse 24, Jesus says, for, because he continues his reasoning, because the word for, you know, means because, because whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, notice how this links then in Jesus's logic with the next phrase, verse 25, because he uses the word for again, it's because. So he's building an argument, because, because, because. Because what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? So if you stick all that reasoning together, verse 24, where the Lord says, if you save your life, you're gonna lose it. Saving your life lines up with gaining the whole world. And that's what we're all about, isn't it, sinners? We, we wanna hold on to the things of the world that give us a sense of security, of pleasure, of satisfaction and fulfillment. And we do that rather than trusting absolutely in Jesus and trusting absolutely in God. And Jesus says, if you save your life going after the gain of the things of this world, you're gonna lose it. I don't think he's messing around here with his words. He's saying, you will have eternal loss, i.e. you won't have eternal life. So those things we trust in for today and for tomorrow and whatever future it is that we have imagined in our minds is not going to support us beyond this world. That's the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God, that there is something that is permanent, that is coming, that is far greater than the things of this world, which are good in what God has given us. I'm not denying that. But Jesus says, I've got something more for you. So deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Don't waste it on trying to gain the things of this life as if they're going to enhance what you're going to enjoy for eternity, because they're not. And in fact, if your focus is on them, you don't have eternal life at all. The world, John says in 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. I'm so glad for that verse, because the desires aspect of that just gets me all the time. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's a promise that if we do the will of God, we abide forever. So true discipleship then, on the basis of what we've seen in this little section as well, I don't have time to go into the, the rest of what it says up to verse uh, 27, but it says, I think it's an absolute conviction about who Jesus is and what Jesus promises and living life in the reality of his unshakable promises rather than living life in the life-limiting, hollowless promises of the world. Now, as a challenge question that does link with the bit I've not touched on, where the Lord says he will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. When we, as Christians, disciples, apprentices of Jesus, have the opportunity to speak about our hopes for the future, which are all about the kingdom of God, which we can enjoy now and in fuller measure into eternity. Do we speak about the kingdom of God or do we speak about the things of the world? 
Of course, it's legitimate to have a conversation with somebody who does not know who Jesus is by the help of God at that point, to show that the things of this life that God has given are good for us. But surely it gives us an opportunity to say, but that's not everything because God is a kingdom that he wants me to be part of, which is even far greater. Sometimes you'll be in conversation with people and they'll say, I want what you have. And you say, I have something, but what I'm gonna get yet is even greater. Let me tell you about the one who brings us into that. That's Jesus. Now let's jump down to uh, verse 43. Jesus repeats to the disciples his mission again because they're just not listening. Let these words sink into your ears. <laughs> Sometimes the words of Jesus really do come at us hard, don't they? Come on, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. What? Here's the Christ of God, the great political and military figure that they've been longing for, who's going to defeat all of the enemies of God's people. And he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. You know, the other side of Calvary, when Christ who denied himself and took up his cross and went there so that he might bring the rescued ones of God's people into his kingdom. The other side of that, the disciples knew then that what Jesus had just said here was all part of God's greater plan that they didn't at that time understand. Acts chapter 2 when Peter is standing and preaching, the very one who had said, that's not going to happen to you, Lord. And the Lord says, get behind me, Satan. He stands up and he preaches after he has seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus, he knew, <coughs> had been delivered up by God, given over to the will of wicked, sinful people like us and tried to be done away with, but we can't do away with God because he just keeps reappearing because he's eternal and he's there. Acts chapter four, verse 28, we're brought into an experience of the prayer meeting of a, of a group of disciples. And as they pray, they speak about Pilate and Herod and the people of Israel who rejected Jesus. And they say to God, and they did whatever your hand and your plan are predestined to take place. Jesus here says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The disciples in their minds are like, no. Jesus is saying, this is God's plan. And it's for the greater good than you can ever imagine. Now look at this with me. Verse 45. But they did not understand. And it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. This is back to that earlier point I left hanging. That it's possible, I fear, that our misguided assumptions and expectations about God and the way he works and his purposes can prevent us from understanding all that God wants us to rejoice in. One of the commentaries in trying to help us to understand that they didn't understand because it was concealed from them says this, because of a consistent pattern of the disciples' failure to comprehend Jesus and his mission, God has kept this from their understanding. Now that's frightening. We need 
That's why I've laboured the point that we need God's help to be able to understand the things of God. We can't do it on our own. God himself comes to help people see who Jesus is, does a work in the heart and in the mind to awaken us to the reality of our sinfulness, the dullness of our minds, the depravity of our minds, as Paul describes it, and then shows us who Jesus is as the Saviour. Here's a challenge question for us. Is it possible on the basis of the testimony of scripture that we've just read to misunderstand God and have such strongly held partial ideas about God's purposes that God himself conceals fuller understanding of his intentions for us? Do you get that? And I'm going to push this a little further. Do we see this in Christianity today? Where we can get so caught up with what it is that we expect that God is doing and become so consumed like the disciples about one way, if I can say it that way carefully, that God then conceals the fullness of his purposes. I'm going to have to leave it there because I've yet to resolve that one in my own mind. It's a frightening thing that we might ourselves, though, have expectations about God's purposes and his workings that then would limit God revealing more of himself to us. That's the frightening thing. Now, verses 46 to 48, we're not going to stop long here, but Luke sticks it in here for a purpose because the Lord has just said to the disciples that his mission is going in a certain way and he's invited people to come and to follow him in the same journey. And he's repeated it to them. He said, let this sink into your ears. I am going to be given over to the, uh, into the hands of men. Luke here records the disciples are arguing among themselves about who the greatest is. Just haven't got it. Jesus knows the deep root of that argument comes from their hearts, their wicked, self-serving hearts. We're back to those selfish desires again. We need new hearts. And thank God that he says in Ezekiel 36 and 26, a promise, it's given to Israel, but it does speak of the reality of what it means to become a Christian and have the new birth experience. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God gives us a new heart. So that the selfish desires that mean that we end up arguing with one another about who's the greatest when all the while Jesus has shown us his greatness by the way he went through the cross and through his resurrection into the place of glory. And we're still arguing with one another. That's all because of selfish desires. Our entitlement to receive what we think we're entitled to and our entitlement to be who we think we're entitled to be. So what does Jesus do? He takes a child and brings a child alongside him. In another account, it says he brings the child onto his knee. And this is important because a child had absolutely no voice, no rights, no influence in that society. And Jesus is effectively saying in the context of this and the way Luke stitches it together as well, he's saying, look, be like a child. 
and trusts me with that childlike faith and give up the pretense of thinking you have any importance whatsoever. Now, this is real freedom and joy. If you think about it, some of the happiest people on the planet are children. Almost getting a smile from you there. We know it to be true, don't we? Why? Because until they get to the point where sinful desires and, and selfish desires seem to creep in, they're not in competition with people, which results in conflict and disappointment. They're, no, they're not living to impress people anymore. They're not living to impress people. They haven't got to that stage. I'm thinking about kids here. They're not living to impress people uh, because when we live to impress people, it only ends up with heartache and sadness for us, doesn't it? They're no longer experiencing existence. Oh, let me go back to the kids. They're not experiencing existence according to the philosophies of the world. Not what people say about life in the universe. That results in unfilling unfulfilling, meaningless nothingness for us. But a child doesn't have any of that. No longer li living. This is what Jesus is saying. Be like a child. Don't live any longer to meet the, ideal, the idealized goals of other people, which only cripples you. Jesus says, come, follow me. Be like a child. And set aside all those things that cause all of this darkness in your life and embrace this life that I have for you. True discipleship is the journey to joyful victory. So Jesus invites us to move from self-induced inadequacy and self-sustained importance to the freedom of God's love, his care, his protection and his guidance. Just like a child who's free to be the happiest of the people on the planet. Now, straight talking Jesus then down to verse 57, just to finish off. They're on the road and Luke wants us to see what this disciple life is all about, to follow after Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going the way of suffering, rejection, death and resurrection. It's no, uh, no accident that Luke says in verse 57, as they were going along the road, so he's, he's on his journey that way. The invitation to come after me still seems to be being extended to people all the while that Jesus is saying what his mission is going to mean. He's not holding it back. He's saying it's going to take you the same way that I go. So come. And we're given three insights here. The first man who comes and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus' reply is essentially... If you're coming after me so that you'll have the things of this world, I'm not going to give you any of that. That's not what I'm here to give you. You might receive it, but I've come to bring you into something greater. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, I have nothing of this world to give to you. It goes back to verse 25, doesn't it? What does a profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose or forfeit his soul? Jesus says, you don't follow me so you might have the things of this world. You follow me so you might have me. 
Second man is invited to follow. You notice the Lord says, follow me. And the response is, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Whoa. Jesus then says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus, how insensitive and heartless can you be? That's, that's how we read it, isn't it? Maybe this would help if we understand that in the Jewish culture, when somebody died, uh, they were buried in a tomb initially. And then a year later, there was a ceremony that was associated with going and gathering the bones of that deceased person from where the person had been buried and putting them in an osary box and then going to the place of family heritage burial site. It's a possibility of what Jesus is getting at here. Maybe the father has already gone. And the man is looking for this occasion in the future when they're going to take the man's bones, the father's bones, and take them to the place of the family burial site. Maybe that softens it a little bit for us. But Jesus says, let the, be the dead go and bury their own dead. I think he's speaking about spiritual deadness. He's saying, look, if that's all you're caught up with about this life, then, then leave that behind. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom of God is all about life. So it does appear heartless. It does appear hard. But it's Jesus inviting us to come and to be part of his journey, which is to freedom and joy and victory. The third person, man, seemingly invited again, says, but let me first say farewell to those at home. You get the little phrase again, let me first. Jesus has been talking to us about denying ourselves, setting aside those selfish desires that are about us. But let me first can stand in the way of us entering into the journey of joyful victory with Jesus. Jesus uses this moment to teach that committed discipleship is about looking ahead. It's plotting a straight course, looking after the one that we're following. Notice that Jesus speaks about plowing the field. The work of the kingdom of God is work. And Jesus says that discipleship is going to involve not just a way that we live, but the work that we do for the kingdom. So it's not enough just to live a certain way. We have to be active as well in the work for the kingdom of God. But he says, you put your hand to the plough. Uh, if you want a straight furrow, you're looking ahead. You start looking behind and that furrow is all over the show. He says, that's not the way to joyful victory and freedom in life. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, looking to Jesus. Colossians 3, verse 1 has been a real help to me this year. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are on earth. Set your mind on the things that are above. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's Paul saying to a group of disciples in Colossae he's never met. He says, you've died. Your old life, it's gone. 
Jesus has suffered to bring you into this new life. Now you set your thing, your mind on the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, a conclusion then. If this grates with us today, irritates us in spirit, uh, even might make us a little bit angry, the words of Jesus can do that to us because we're selfish people. Maybe he's exposing something in us that wants to maintain control of our lives to our great eternal risk and exposing our trust in the transient things of this world. And that can even be our relationships. And they're unable to save us in the way that God saves us. Jesus' journey to eternal glory, peace and joy was through suffering, rejection, death and resurrection. Hebrews 12 verse 2 goes on to say, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where we're invited to come, with Jesus. It's costly, but it's glorious. It's true freedom, like that of a child. It's life to the full, in all of the joy that we imagine when we think, of that example that the Lord brings us to with the child that he brings near. So true discipleship is the journey to joyful victory in companionship with Jesus. Robin Mark, good Northern Irish man, wrote the song, Jesus, all for Jesus. Second verse, all of my ambitions, hopes and plans, I surrender these into your hands. For it's only in your will that I am free. For it's only in your will that I am free. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be.